Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, grace and peace to each of you in the name of Christ. It is a great joy to be with you today on the second Sunday of June. Uh, to the Wiedenhoff family, what a joy is ours to share this day with you and your precious Elijah Robert. It is great to have all of you with us. And I want to say a, a word uh, about my bishop. I'm so grateful for Bishop McAlilly, uh, not only for his leadership in Tennessee, Western Kentucky, um, but for his friendship as well. Uh, I love Bishop McAlilly almost as much as Lynn McAlilly. Uh, they're a wonderful team. And uh, Bishop, it means a lot to have you and Lynn with us. Uh, we welcome you. This, we hope you know that this is your church, not just on Ash Wednesday, by the way. Uh, Bishop McAlilly is uh, sometimes peeved with me because I only ask him to preach on Ash Wednesday. Uh, but we'll get him, get him back to preach for us this week, uh, in fact, at annual conference. Please remember us in your prayers. Uh, we will celebrate uh, on Wednesday. We're looking forward to th uh, the conference coming on Wednesday, and we're looking forward to them exiting on Friday. Uh, so we'll uh, remember, remember all of these folks. Casey, thank you for your prayer this morning means so much to us. If you've been here the last seven weeks, you know that I think it was May the 1st that we began a series on Philippians, and we're completing that series today. We have read almost word for word our way through all four chapters, 
And Paul, as you've noticed from Lynn's reading, concludes today, chapter 4, we read the entire conclusion. He ends the letter with a word of gratitude. He gives thanks for the gift of this flock that was given to him when he was on death row in a Roman prison cell where he was waiting at any moment for the Roman tribunal to sound the alarm. He was either guilty or he would be acquitted. And they've sent a gift. And Paul thanks them for it. It wasn't just a care package that was entrusted by the Roman Postal Service. No, this gift was hand-delivered by one of the leaders in Philippi, Epaphroditus, who later, tradition says, became the bishop of Macedonia. Verse 16 in what we read implies that it wasn't just a one-time giving. In fact, Paul says in verse 16, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. So they repeatedly supported their pastor. In fact, this body may have been, I suspect it was the only church from whom Paul accepted financial assistance. As a rule, Paul was very cautious when it came to taking money for ministry, finances for preaching. And yet, 1 Corinthians 9, in that chapter, he's promoting compensation for spiritual leaders, and he does it through the rhetorical question, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not get any of its milk? And so he's promoting the care of spiritual leaders. In fact, one of my favorite verses, Hugh, is from 1 Timothy 5.17. This is from the message where Paul says, give a bonus to leaders who do a good job, especially the ones who work hard at preaching. Amen? Well, that's more than I got from the earlier services. And yet, here's the thing. Paul, Paul more often refused remuneration for himself. Why? Why? Because the apostle knew that gifts often come with strings attached. And he didn't want to be beholden to anybody when it came to preaching and teaching and ministering. The apostle Paul wanted partners, not patrons. He wanted followers, not fans. He wanted believers rather than benefactors. But in Philippi, there's a connection here. There's a relationship that's so tight, that's so strong between pastor and parish that Paul was okay accepting help. In chapter 20, verse 35 of Acts, Paul, one of the few times, Paul actually quotes Jesus as having said, you know this verse, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's true. The giver always gets more blessing than the givee. But it's also true that it is a blessing to receive. I, I don't know if you all got the star words during Epiphany. Casey, I think you helped us with this. During the Epiphany season, those first two weeks in January, we gave out stars with a word on the back of it, and my star on the back of it said, receive. And I'm not always very good at that, and so I've been trying for the last six months to be better at receiving. 
receiving criticism and affirmation, receiving concern and encouragement. It's important to receive both, I think, with grace. But I've noticed among us, and I'm talking Williamson County, that it's more difficult for us who are overachievers to receive. For many of us, it's easier to give than it is to receive. But the interesting thing about our faith is you can't really give until you receive. I've seen this happen over and over again in myself, in clergy, and others, that when someone compliments you or affirms you and says, hey, that's a good message today, or hey, thank you for the lesson, thank you for the gift of the letter, we say, oh, it was nothing. But it was something. A couple of weeks ago, we had our baptism of our little Elijah Robert, whose name is Crosby, and, and after it was over, we went to our home, and we had way too many chapels in one house. We had 20 of our family in one house, and Sherry had prepared this spread. It was unbelievable, and people were thanking her, and she said, oh, it, it's nothing. And I looked at her, and I said, what do you mean nothing? This woman spent an entire week slaving over a hot stove. That's really something. I said, all y'all ought to be doing obeisance on your knees to this woman. And sometimes it's okay to receive and just say, thank you. My privilege. Chick-fil-A taught us that, didn't it? My, my pleasure. It's okay to receive. It's more blessed to give, of course, but it's also a blessing to receive. Paul was grateful for what he received, these gifts, and for the thought behind it. We always say that. It's the thought that counts. But he's not beholden to them for the gift. The apostle is not doing ministry for applause. He's not doing it for accolades. He's doing it out of obedience. He's going to do it whether he's affirmed or rejected. And Lord knows Paul had his share of rejection. It's interesting, when you flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you find an inventory of Paul's suffering, Paul's hardship. He, he rattles off all the ways he's been beat up for Jesus. There's imprisonments, there's lashes, there's rods and stonings and shipwreck, drifting at sea, sleepless days and nights, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure, danger from everyone everywhere. And then, as icing on the cake, Paul mentions one other trial. Apart from this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I think our bishop understands something about that. But in Paul's case, this is a guy who faced everything imaginable, every obstacle, every opposition, and yet learned in his own words to be content and anxious for nothing. And yet in this passage, he admits that after all he's endured, still he feels this deep anxiety for the church. Now personally, I don't know why, but this passage is a comfort to me. And it's not that I've suffered what Paul has suffered, not even close. But every earnest pastor I know feels the burden 
of his church, her church. And Paul had several churches to burden him. His churches had infighting, they had backbiting, they had gossip and false teaching. There were some churches who were prone to legalism and others complete chaos. There were some who were making secondary matters primary and primary matters secondary. And Paul loved the church, but their struggles burdened him. He says, get this, more than shipwreck and imprisonment. I mean, it's amazing to think that perhaps Paul in prison in Rome felt like he was having a holiday compared to preaching in Corinth. It's pretty tough. But in this case, to receive the care of his congregation in Philippi had to be a boost to his system. It, It had to be an encouragement. But ultimately, he wants them to know He's not dependent on those gifts. While he appreciates the help he's received, he shares the secret to his ministry. It's in verses 11 and 12. I love this passage. I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed, of going hungry, of having plenty, of being in need. I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I've italicized that word content. Contentment in the Greek tongue in which the New Testament was written is autarkia, which literally means independence. It means self-sufficiency. Now, that word would resonate well in the Greco-Roman culture, especially with the Stoic philosophers. There were two philosophies, Stoicism and Cynicism. That would have been well-suited for Stoics who were well-represented in Philippi. The Stoics taught that the highest form of contentment comes through indifference to pleasure or to pain. Now, we may have some Stoics in the room. I'm a bit of a Stoic myself. For example, whenever we have house guests who spend the night with us, before we turn out the lights, I will tell them, look, if you need anything during the night, let me know, and I'll come and show you how to live without it. (laughs) I, I would have been a good Philippian. I'm a bit of a Stoic. Paul's hometown, Tarsus, was known for its center of Stoicism. But his contentment was not based on self-sufficiency. It was based on Christ's sufficiency. And because of that, the man could live with abundance, but he didn't have to be rich. He could live with hunger and want, but he didn't have to be poor because his life was not defined socioeconomically. His life was defined by the indwelling of the risen Christ whose power enabled him to persevere in any and every situation. Now think of the implications of that. That means that Paul could be just as peaceful sitting in a Roman prison cell as he was preaching freely in Philippi. That means that Paul could have been just as secure when he shipwrecked in Malta as when he's sharing his witness at Mars Hill. Go back to that 2 Corinthians text, the inventory of suffering for a moment. 
And notice that Paul never says, when I'm self-sufficient, I'm strong. He says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He says something totally countercultural. He says that God's power is made perfect in weakness so that we can actually be okay, even with insults, even with hardship, even with persecution and calamity, because when we are weak, we're strong. Such mindfulness, I think, enabled Paul to write in his last words in this text, in this letter, just before his execution, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. All your needs, needs. Notice he didn't say wants. I don't know about you, but sometimes I confuse my wants with my needs. And I thank God nearly every day that God has not given me everything that I wanted. I told my lead team the other day that oftentimes these days I pray in the morning, Lord, please don't let me do what everybody wants me to do. Help me to do what you need me to do. And when I confuse the two, forgive me and help me discern the difference. That's what leads to Artakia contentment. I love John Steinbeck. In his last novel, dated 1961, he wrote a novel called The Winter of Our Discontent. He stole the line from Shakespeare's Richard III, The Winter of Our Discontent. There's a line in that book that haunts me where Steinbeck writes these words. We can shoot rockets into space, but we cannot seem to cure our anger and our discontent. Well, we're living in the winter of our discontent, wherein oftentimes we're justifying, we're rationalizing our sin, our anger, our division, our distrust, our aggression, our violence where we seem sometimes to be more interested in power and position than in people. But I've come to the conclusion that the core problem is not political, it's a heart problem. I'm not sure that we can ever legislate our way out of discontent, but it's not a legislative issue, it's a soul issue. It's a heart problem. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist and dissident, used to say when I was a boy, he said, we, we'd go to sleep at night listening to our grandparents discuss the issues of Russia, and he said, at the end of the conversation, it always concluded in the same way. They would say this, the problem is men have forgotten God. That's the issue. We were made for God. And until he is our greatest pleasure, all other pleasures of this life will lead to emptiness. Let me share one other word. I got a letter from one of our members a few weeks ago. She had dropped out during the second year of COVID in terms of 
her life in the church. She said she loved the church. She'd been a member of for years and served in many areas. She gave me permission to share this with you. The first year of COVID, uh, she said, I felt very strong in my faith. I appreciated the production team, the creativity, the online services, the Zoom, all of that. Very meaningful. But as time passed, she said, tensions arose around masks and vaccines in schools, churches, community. And there was a good deal of debate in Sunday school about protocol. Felt like these concerns, she said, were infecting and dividing every institution, including our churches. And she said, I felt myself becoming discouraged and depressed. Let me share her own words with you. I have not set foot in the church since the pandemic began. I can't explain it, but I couldn't find the strength to walk through the doors. I drove here intending to walk in, but couldn't bring myself to do it. I thought about checking other churches, but I couldn't do that either. I was, I was just angry. I was disappointed. I was hurt. I was disillusioned. But why? I couldn't put my finger on it, but then on a walk one day, it hit me. I wasn't just angry with the church. I was angry with the world. All the division, taking sides, all the rhetoric, all the politics, all the hate was taking its toll on my soul. It seemed that everyone was so concerned with their own individual rights that we forgot community. We forgot that sometimes we have to put aside our own needs for the benefit of others. I asked myself, did we truly understand what it means to be the hands and feet of Christ? Do, do we understand how our words and actions impact others? What, what was going on? I didn't want to go to church and have to explain why I chose to wear a mask or get a vaccine. I didn't want to feel anger and division. I didn't know if this was even happening in my church, but I was afraid. I was afraid to come in the door for fear that my safe place may have succumbed to what was happening in our culture. So, she said, I didn't walk through the doors at all until today. With a gentle nudge from a friend, for whom I'm eternally grateful, I walked through the doors. I was nervous, I was scared, I was skeptical, and I cried like a baby the whole service. The music, the words, the message grabbed my heart. The words I heard were words that I desperately needed to hear. And for the first time in months, I felt a glimmer of hope. I felt a hardened heart cracked open just a bit. Will I be back next Sunday? She said, I honestly don't know, but I'm working on it, end of quote. Well, I'm happy to tell you, she did come back the next Sunday and the next, and she's here today. I have to tell you, when I read that letter, I wept. And I put her epistle in my Bible right between Philippians and Colossians as a reminder that the church is called not only to be a safe place, we're called to be a brave space.
where we actually transcend all of the polarity, all of the division, and speak into a, a broken world, words of life, words of love, words of conviction, words of repentance, words of grace that desperately need to be heard. And when we do, it is possible that the winter of our discontent will begin to dissolve and melt into spring. And we will discover that indeed God's grace is sufficient for our need. I don't, I don't know whether you're on the mountaintop today or in the valley. I, I, don't know, I don't know whether you're rich or poor, joyful, sorrowful, courageous, fearful. What I do know is that we can endure all things through Christ who is our strength. I know that. It's not about self-sufficiency. It's about Christ-sufficiency. And friend, that is the source of our contentment. May it be so. In you, in me, in us, to the glory of God.